Hi, it's Tashvia, and this is the Education Situation. Today, I'm going to be talking about education in New York City, specifically the funding system that has failed a countless number of students, particularly students of color and low-income students for years. We need more resources in the right places. Mayor Bill de Blasio Thursday promised not to cut the entire program. Young speakers called on the city to provide more resources for the arts, culturally responsive curriculum, and restorative justice. Which begs the question, how can we fund our public school system equitably? Well, first, we have to look at how our schools are currently funded. I figured the best place to start would be the New York City Department of Education School Budget Resource Guide. Here's what I gathered. About two-thirds of the funding schools receive is for internal improvement, like funding clubs, electives, and paying staff. And it comes from a program called Fair Student Funding. The other one-third comes from state and federal aid combined, and most of it is used to fund non-district schools, like charter schools, and for non-instructional costs, like transportation. This program, made up of local funding, reformed an inequitable past funding system in which school funds were tied to teachers' pay by implementing a per-pupil weighting system. What that basically means is that schools would receive funding based on each student's needs. For instance, if a student was an ESL learner or had a disability, they would have an additional weight depending on their level of need, which would increase the funds allocated to a certain school so that students who are struggling in a school more received additional support. Despite their goal to make school budgets more transparent and help spur student achievement, the intended impact never occurred, as fair school funding was not fully implemented despite its introduction 12 years ago. As a result, currently 77% of city schools have not received the funding they are projected to receive from FSF, and most of these were higher need schools, as wealthier schools had an existing surplus of funds to fall back on. So what we have now is an overfunding of schools that house a smaller population of students in need and an underfunding of schools that have a higher need population. Coupled with this imbalance in fund distribution, budget cuts on a statewide level due to financial crises like the Great Recession in 2008 and even our current pandemic right now, as well as proposals for reductions on a national level have harmed our public school system. Without plans to increase federal funding, the president and his secretary of education, Betsy DeVos, made multiple efforts to divert funds away from public schools to private schools and even from the education system. Like in 2018, when he proposed a federal reduction on education spending by 15%. We're talking billions of dollars to uphold the Trump tax plan. Even worse is that this funding process rewards schools with more money if their students excel academically. A provision in the revamped school funding model gives schools an annual $1,000 bonus per student at 13 of the city's high schools, including the eight specialized high schools. Thus, schools like my own high school, Stuyvesant, are receiving more money per pupil, and this culminates into a huge academic gap over struggling schools that do not receive this extra funding. After realizing how rooted this problem is and how progress toward education has been mostly stagnant, I wanted to know more about the history of school funding to understand why billions of dollars are funneled into our education system with no resulting change. As I suspected, the problem was not that there haven't been any reforms made, but that the ones that have been implemented are not addressing the funding issues in our education system, 
Rather, they serve as a means of managing them. Before fair student funding was introduced, school funding was based on school-wide average salary, the average salary of teachers at a school. Schools were incentivized to hire more teachers, especially those with more experience, in order to receive more money. However, this disadvantaged higher need schools with lower paid staff, as they were unable to hire and pay new, more experienced teachers. As the years passed, schools with a higher school-wide average salary widened the funding gap. For example, if we look at two schools, both with 100 teachers, an increase of $10,000 per teacher for one school could lead to a $1 million overall funding difference between both. And what's even more alarming is that school reforms in the past have contributed to the present problem underfunded schools face. For example, if we look at George Bush's No Child Left Behind program and Mayor Bloomberg's School Choice program, the vision for both programs was that low-income students would be able to have more choice than their zoned schools and possibly attend a school in a richer, better-funded neighborhood, which would allow them to receive a better education than they would have otherwise. It's time to come together to get it done so that we can truthfully say in America, no child will be left behind, not one single child. The president's nearly $48 billion education plan includes testing children annually to more closely monitor reading and math skills, rewarding schools where grades improve, and punishing failing schools by cutting federal money to districts that don't show progress, and allowing parents of children in public schools that fail three years in a row to use tax dollars, government vouchers, to move their children to private schools. The result, beneficial for a select few, still left many low-income first-generation students without the option that they clearly wanted all students to have. As some students were able to relocate, underfunded schools were dealt with another blow, a decrease in enrollment. This depleted their funding, further harming the students who weren't able to get into another school through these programs, and thus remained in schools that were now more vulnerable than ever. Charter schools are one of the most scrutinized. While they are similar to public schools in that they don't charge tuition, Charter schools are operated by independent groups, such as nonprofits, corporations, parents, or even churches, and they operate independently from a certain school district. As of 2018, though, in New York City, over 40,000 students are on charter school wait lists, an arduous process because of the fact that charter schools often rely on lottery admissions, as they typically receive more applications than the number of available seats, and those who apply past deadlines are the ones placed on the bottom of the wait list. Furthermore, there's no concrete evidence that students in charter schools perform better than those at public schools. However, charter schools continue to be marketed in a way that portrays superiority over traditional public schools. Because of the sheer number of students in New York City public schools, competition for seats in charter schools causes struggling schools to lose their students and thus also lose, also lose their much and thus also lose their much needed funding. Despite this, over the last 10 years, the amount of charter schools have almost tripled. When students leave traditional public schools and go to charter schools, how does that affect the not only the school district, but the communities? In district after district across the country, we've seen the growth of charters accompanied by uh, the loss of funding to the public schools, meaning that they have to cut. What people don't realize when they hear charters is that every dollar that goes to charter and vouchers is a dollar taken away from public schools. In a study done by the Center for New York City Affairs, it was shown that low-income families, those who don't speak English, and recent immigrants are less likely to exercise school choice. And so, 
Once their schools start losing resources and maybe even possibly close, the irony of the situation lies in the fact that the funding deficit caused by school choice takes away schooling options and ultimately harms more students than helps. What do you say to those who, who say that they want to give families like yours school choice? That kind of angers me when I'm hearing that so much now. Choice, choice, it's a choice. This was my choice. Now let's look at how this affects a school, its students, and staff. Underfunding schools can lead to a multitude of problems as exemplified by the financial crisis the Metropolitan Expeditionary Learning School has suffered from. Located in Forest Hills, Queens, a few blocks away from my own elementary school, Mel's houses a student body where 70% qualify for free or reduced lunch, indicating that a large portion of the population is in poverty. The school is unique in that it diverges away from using conventional methods of learning passively and instead focuses on creating a curriculum known as the Expeditionary Learning Model that immerses its students into distinct fields of learning and teaches them skills that will assist them in the real world. A lot of this includes hands-on learning, like going to a local park to study plants and animals rather than learning them through a textbook and then taking a test. The purpose of this, as Principal Damon McCord stated in an article by DNA Info, was to get kids to think deeply about the world of which they are part in and address some of the injustices that are happening. Although new in its idea, this learning model has proved to be successful in execution, as the school was only one out of two unscreened schools in New York City to have a 100% graduation rate. Despite these impressive statistics and the staff's evident dedication to its students, the school has been subject to continuous budget cuts. With school budget cuts reaching $100,000 annually since 2009, Mel's has to find ways to compensate for the loss. For one, the amount of after-school activities and extracurriculars have been severely limited, which takes away a creative outlet that many students would look forward to. Out of 30 available clubs in the school, only nine remained. Nine in a school that houses 840 students. Let that sink in. Because the school can barely handle the funds necessary for these clubs, many of the faculty advisors have gone unpaid and have instead volunteered their time and effort to allow students to have at least a few clubs. I was curious to see what clubs were cut. To my surprise, clubs like Jazz Ensemble, Photography Club, Live Poet Society, and many more art-based and humanities organizations were cut. Not only does this take away opportunities from students who are interested in these subjects or hobbies, but it also prevents students from receiving a high school experience comparable to a school like Stuyvesant that has more than 200 clubs. What's even worse is that one of the reasons Mel's budget is struggling is because of rising staff salaries and the annual funding deficit. Since the school retains most of its staff, the rising salaries per year causes the school to have less money left over for purposes like investing in extracurriculars or academic programs, and even for hiring more teachers. With a lack of teachers comes the added stress placed on educators to meet the needs of the student body. As the student population of the school continues to grow, the lack of funds available to pay teachers has typical classes reaching 33 to 34 kids, which is the maximum number of students allowed in a classroom. The inability to hire teachers has resulted in a skewed teacher to student ratio in which many teachers are overwhelmed by the amount of students they must teach and students don't receive a proper education. Schools shouldn't have to turn to these drastic measures unless they are facing dire situations, not because of the government's unwillingness to fund schools properly, even when they have the means to. Now expand the picture. This situation is not unique to Mel's as it affects multiple other schools that mirror a similar student body. It reflects a much larger problem concerning the economic disadvantage marginalized communities, 
especially low-income communities of color face within our school system. These problems have only been exacerbated by the pandemic. With budget cuts on already underfunded schools, students have not been able to receive the resources they need to tackle remote learning and are left unprepared and less likely to engage in school. There have already been discussions among staff, educators, and officials about what can be done to combat the financial inequities. For one, funding schools based on a per-pupil budget has funds that follow students to wherever they might go, but it disadvantages schools that have a decrease in enrollment due to school choice. As a student leaves, the money also leaves. It would make more sense to allocate funds directly to specific schools and add a greater amount for struggling schools. This would help narrow the funding gap between wealthier schools being funded at greater rates than those that aren't and prevent the loss of funding from competition within charter schools. And I think it's clear that education is not seen as a top priority within our federal government. While most of the responsibility falls on local and state governments to fund schools, the federal government also plays a small but important role. Its role is to guarantee equal access to education for all students, as well as safeguarding students' and teachers' constitutional rights. Essentially, this includes programs like Title I, which provides money to local districts to improve academic performance of students from low-income families and Individuals with Disabilities Education Act a program that allocates money to help students with disabilities in the public school system. However, federal involvement has always been very low, never exceeding 10%, and for the past year, the federal government only contributed 7% to the total budget. Public finance records show that only 2% of the federal budget is allocated for education, and this percentage has been consistent for years. Why is it that officials like Betsy DeVos and even Trump are so adamant about school choice, but only a minuscule amount of the budget is apportioned specifically for education, especially during times when state funding and local funding are heavily cut due to economic recessions like the pandemic. Take a listen to what DeVos had to say about funding during COVID. Education is a promise to students and their families. If schools aren't going to reopen and not fulfill that promise, they shouldn't get the funds. Looking at other aspects of the federal budget, it's evident that military spending is overwhelmingly high. The U.S. spends more on its military than any other country in the world, and a huge chunk of the spending, $740 billion in the last year, goes to the Pentagon. Frankly, a lot of this money is wasted in the sense that dozens of projects fail each year and many never perform as expected. An idea supported by many senators recently was to relocate 10% of Pentagon spending for education, healthcare, childcare, and housing for communities facing poverty rates of 25% or higher. And over 60 national civil society organizations sent letters to the Senate in support of this proposal. Despite the evident need for a realignment of the nation's priorities in the wake of the pandemic and economic fallout, Congress has voted against it twice. What the education system desperately needs are officials who are invested in equitable education and are willing to increase school funding rather than threatening to withhold it. And this could be possible with just a few percent increase in education spending from the federal budget. So what else can we do? For those not directly involved in the education system, it may seem like there's nothing you can do about this problem. However, as I've learned, everyone's voice matters. It's important to stay informed about the state of education in your communities and to fight for equitable education, whether this be by writing letters to your local council members, protesting budget cuts, or even pitching in to help underfunded schools. No action is too small.